I'd like to welcome everyone back to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, the author of 16 books. And we're going to kind of pick up where we left off the last time you you heard us. And I think it's very important. Uh, Frank McKay here. Much more importantly, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg. Uh, Doc, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Frank. I hope you are, too. I am. And, uh, you know, when it... Uh, when, when it comes down to it, uh, good stories sometimes take a while to tell, and uh, and there's more to it. And you you've got a uh, you've got a very good uh, you've got a very good dialogue going on here, or narrative I should say, going on here. So let me not get in your way of doing that. Uh, where where can you uh, start up, Doc? Okay. Are we ready? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to say something else. No, no, no. <laughs> um, well, first of all, we have rain. <laughs> we wow. have rain for the first time since May here, uh, and the temperature is down to 80, which feels absolutely cold after having one hundred over 100, uh, probably averaged around 102, but got up as high as 108 here in San Antonio. <clears throat> so this is a great relief, and it, right now it is sprinkling. We had a uh, uh, one cloud that went over that gave us a, a brief heavy rain, and now it's sprinkling again, so perhaps it will keep doing this for a while. And all of this is thanks to the hurricane in the Gulf, uh, which is very unfortunate for the Gulf and the people uh, where it's going to land, but uh, for us it is a wonderful relief from a uh, terrible drought uh, that was killing everything. It was killing all the, uh, the plants that were rooted in the ground because there was absolutely no moisture for them. Wow. And I was losing trees even. But anyway, to get back to what I was doing last time, uh, I should call this episode that I'm talking about sleuthing for Ignatz. And Ignatz... <laughs> Yeah. Ignatz was a an 18th century Jesuit missionary in the southwest, in the area of the Mexico state of Sonora and Arizona now. Um, these days, he served in three missions, and one of them was as far north as, uh, as Nogales, and north of that, uh, there is a national park there called Tumacacori National Park, uh, which is where his uh, third uh, mission was. In any case, he served uh, very successfully and converted the Indians uh, with great, uh, great ease, apparently. And part of, his, part of his success was due to the fact that he was an accomplished violinist, and he played his violin for the Indians and they loved it. They were very, they're very musical. The Indians, it turns out, certainly these tribes, uh, and it it pulled them back from hostility to wanting to learn from him, and they certainly did. In any case, all of the Jesuits all over the world were exiled thanks to uh, King Carlos III of Spain because the patron saint of the Jesuits is St. Ignatius Loyola, Ignatz in German, uh, who was a Spaniard. He was a military man to begin with, and, during, uh, and he, was, uh, he was on uh, the battlements during a fight, and a cannonball went between his legs and took most of the flesh off of one of his legs, and it took him months, I think, to recover from it, and during that he had a vision of the Virgin and converted and uh, and actually went to Paris. He was crippled for life after that, but he could walk. Uh, in any case, he... Uh, and of course, they had no antibiotic. It's a wonder a man survived, but, but he did. Yeah, and wow. He, and uh, in, in 1540, he took uh, first of all, he went to the Sorbonne, uh, to the Collège de Montaigu, which was a very right-wing, we call it, would call it a right-wing conservative uh, college, 
uh, but in any case, he, he completed his training in theology there and then took uh, his companions who had already become more or less disciples of his uh, to Rome in uh, 1540 and proposed to the Pope uh, that he uh, that he be uh, that they be incorporated as a uh, as a society of Jesus and he the Pope uh, agreed uh, but he asked them to take a fourth vow the, the three vows that all monks and all priests take is poverty chastity and obedience and he took a, and they had to take a fourth vow of obedience to the pope so they were tightly connected to the pope from then on and they uh, their mission what they wanted to do and what the pope then charged them with was to reform european education this was of course ignatius's idea up until that time children had been beaten if they did not learn or if they turned up not having done their lessons their homework uh, and they were taught by fear fear of being punished and instead the the jesuit approach was to be stern to be strict but be kind and they also used plays uh, portraying uh, biblical scenes and also inspiring scenes from classical antiquity especially rome roman the roman theater uh, and, and uh, roman martyrs uh, were portrayed on uh, on stage and the, believe me the kids learned history if they were portraying history in a, in a play uh, all the plays that i ever acted in uh, are riveted in my mind the, the plots thereof like murder in the cathedral for instance uh, and uh, and so it was a, a marvelous way of teaching, but they also taught everything. They taught mathematics and so forth. And the curriculum that they originated is the curriculum that we basically follow now uh, because it came, became a common curriculum throughout Europe and then it was uh, spread to the New World as well. So the Jesuits are at the root of all that. And in addition, they were missionaries. Those were the two things, education and missions. And the last uh, episode of this sleuthing for Ignatz, um, I, I came across Ignatz because uh, he had written a book describing the province of Sonora, Mexico. And I, I needed, for the book I was writing at the time, I needed to know about Indian herbal medicine. And among other things, Ignatz describes Indian herbal medicine in his book called simply a description of the province of Sonora. And I recommend it to any, any reader who is curious about 18th century knowledge of the sciences because uh, that was a pre-scientific era and none of them had been named yet. And this man, Ignatz Pfefferkorn, uh, went through all of them in that book. Uh, the anthropology of the region, the geology, the geography, of course, the uh, the botany, the biology, uh, everything you can imagine, only he did not name them those names. He simply described each one in turn and medicine, including Indian herbal medicine. So he was, uh, he was then along with uh, with all the Jesuits throughout the world, uh, was arrested by the King of Spain because his his prime minister had convinced him that the Jesuits were attempting were going to going to attempt to assassinate him. And the the problem with the Jesuits at that time was that since they were not cloistered like most monks, in other words, they were locked up in monasteries. 
the Jesuits were out in the world and were able to mix with real people. <laughs> and uh, and they're able to teach children and to yeah. know their parents and so forth. And they also became confessors to nobility, to the nobles and to kings and queens. And uh, in Spain and Portugal, both, they were advisors to king and queens because in confession, uh, the king would ask questions, would ask advice, and the Jesuit priest would give it, uh, and thereby uh, influence national policy. And the, uh, the, the, the king's cabinet hated that because they had less influence on the king's decisions than the Jesuit priest did. And so they plotted to get rid of the Jesuits, and boy, they succeeded. Uh, King Carlos was feeble-minded, and he uh, believed the story that uh, the Jesuits, uh, who were pretty much, they were dominant because all the rich parents sent their, their sons to the Jesuits and not to the other orders. The other orders were angry at the Jesuits, too, because of that. And the Jesuits were, uh, their missions were producing crops that were underselling. Uh, the uh, the commercial crops, and so the business people were mad at the Jesuits. So they were in trouble at that time. And so the king ordered that they all be arrested and sent back to Rome. And Rome could not accommodate the 6,000 men who uh, would potentially flood the city uh, and overwhelm the city, certainly overwhelm the Vatican. And so uh, the Jesuits were marched down to the coast of the Mediterranean and loaded onto anything that would float and sent back to Rome. Unfortunately for them, the Pope had closed every port. And so the ship would come, uh, a ship, let's say, would come into a port, let's say Genoa, and unfortunately it would not be allowed to dock. It would be sent on. And provisions ran out, and the Jesuits began, who were prisoners, began to die of thirst and then of hunger. And they were thrown, their bodies were thrown overboard, so the Mediterranean along the Italian coast is paved with skeletons of Jesuits. And out of 6,000, some, uh, maybe a 1,000, were able to land at last on Cyprus. And the, even the, the Cypriots had trouble feeding them, even so. A thousand men all of a sudden is a lot of people. And so they continued to starve. Uh, but the uh, Prince of Genoa allowed the remnant then to cross into Northern Europe. And they went to uh, Prussia, which was Protestant. Uh, Frederick the Great was in charge of, of Prussia at that time. And they went into Russia, and the Empress of Russia uh, took them and put them to work in her universities and wrote to the Pope saying, um, you have exiled. Uh, I should have said uh, that the, the Pope, who was a Franciscan and political appointee, so he owed um, moneyed people his position, really. Uh, and so when they told him that they, uh, they wanted the Jesuits annihilated, uh, he did so in 1773. Now, the, the king had exiled all the Jesuits in 1767. And, uh, and Ignatz Pfefferkorn had arrived back in Spain in 1769. Uh, after being in, in prison in, in uh, Mexico for two years uh, and then on the prison ship coming across the Atlantic. Uh, and he, for the longest time, I did not know where he was imprisoned then. I knew that at a certain point, he was moved and imprisoned in a monastery uh, over next to Portugal in a, a city called Ciudad Rodrigo in a monastery called Nuestra Señora de la Caridad. And in my last talk, I described my search in Spain 
uh, repeated uh, trips to Spain and searches in. Uh, first of all, I, I thoroughly uh, inspected the monastery of Nuestra Señora de la Caridad. So I was able to describe that in detail in the book called The Storks of la Caridad, uh, which is uh, a more or less a summary of his fate in Spain. And eventually I discovered that he had been imprisoned for eight years in uh, Puerto de Santa Maria, which is uh, the port of, of Cadiz in southern, southwestern uh, Spain. And then he was released thanks to one of his fellow missionaries from Sonora who happened to be released thanks to Maria Teresa, who was Empress of Austria at the time. And it turns out that most of these Jesuits were uh, of very uh, noble families, and that included Ignaz. And uh, so this, this priest was released and came through Ciudad Rodrigo, where Ignaz was in that monastery. And Ignaz asked him, please, to let his sister, Isabella, was the name of his sister, know uh, where he was, because he was hoping that she could uh, influence somehow uh, the authorities and get him out of prison. Uh, and he had, by that time, been in prison for 10 years, almost. And so... Uh, Bernhard Middendorf was the name of that priest, and he went and contacted Isabella, who then went to the Elector of Cologne. Now, electors, for those who don't know, were princes uh, who elected the Holy Roman Emperor uh, at the time, and they were the ones who, it was like the Electoral College, <laughs> and uh, very much like that. Uh, it wasn't the the uh, priests and bishops who elected the Holy Roman Emperor. It was these electors who were uh, kings and princes uh, of authority around places like Cologne, which was a major uh, commercial center at the time. Well, Isabella had enough influence. Uh, her family was very noble and very powerful. And uh, she persuaded the elector, who was Maximilian uh, Friedrich. Um, and Maximilian Friedrich wrote to uh, King Carlos saying that he, uh, please release Ignaz Pfefferkorn. And when Maximilian did not, uh, I mean, when uh, Carlos did not uh, release uh, Ignaz, Maximilian wrote back and said, uh, I will cut off all commerce with Spain if you don't do it. And of course, that was major, major loss for Spanish commerce. And he, he complied. He, uh, so he released the order for the release, of which I have a copy, by the way. I found it in the historical archive in Madrid. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, orders his release on Christmas Eve uh, in 1775. And so that means that at, at, at the end of 10 years of, of imprisonment, after he had served 11 years as a missionary, honorably and successfully, he finally got home. So it was 21 years uh, he was away from home and had not seen his sister. Uh, so he went back home. And uh, I was all ready to, I wanted to write a book about, because he had published his book on Sonora in 1798, nine, I'm, I'm sorry, 1794. And, uh, and so I knew he had lived at least that long after he was released. And of course he would have had some further adventures in his life. And I wanted to find out uh, where he had gone I had no idea where Isabella was and where his home had been. And so I decided I would go to Germany and try to find out. And it was the same way I had gone to Spain, more or less out of the blue, not knowing where he uh, had been imprisoned. 
and and ultimately finding out through uh, various museums and, and archives and so forth. And uh, I recruited a good friend of, uh, of ours, of my husband and mine. My husband, by the way, uh, died of Parkinson's disease in 1996. But, uh, of course, his best friend, Ralph Friedman, who was uh, professor uh, and head of the uh, Comparative Literature Department in Princeton, and now retired, um, and, and re, uh, continued uh, contact with me. Uh, and so I asked him to come with me to Germany because my German was, at that time, uh, I could read German perfectly well, but I was not, uh, I was rusty at speaking and I was slow uh, and I would have to think before I said anything to whether I had the right case endings. <laughs> In my senses, <laughs> Germany is a very complex language. Yeah, no doubt. Because of the case system, which changes the endings of words. Uh, and if you get the wrong case ending, then you have an incorrect sentence. <laughs> and uh, that embarrasses one, uh, in, certainly in polite and, and uh, learned company. Uh, so anyway, I was hoping to... Uh, uh, to uh, find someone who could help me out with the language. And furthermore, Ralph could read the 18th century handwriting, which is distinctly different from the handwriting that we uh, use, uh, the British handwriting, which we have inherited, um, and which we use regularly for English and, and for most other languages like Spanish and so forth. But uh, German, German, uh, German book printing was uh, was the Gothic script, which is the Gothic font, uh, which is very, very different from the regular Roman font, which we use uh, in, uh, in other countries. Uh, I can read a printed page very easily. The Gothic script doesn't bother me, but man, the handwriting and the variations in people's ways of forming uh, letters, uh, that threw me and still does. Uh, so Ralph was uh, indispensable. Uh, anyway, so we embarked. Uh, we flew first to Frankfurt, uh, Frankfurt and then we, uh, I rented the car, and I was the chauffeur. Then uh, we drove to Cologne, and that was the only clue we had because Ignaz had published his books there. And uh, in the 18th century, that meant that he didn't live too far away because transportation was horseback and coach uh, or on, on the Rhine River. Uh, it, of course, Cologne is on the Rhine. And uh, so he, if, if he lived somewhere along the river, he probably got there by boat, uh, else he would have ridden a horse to, to get to Cologne. And all of this would take time. And therefore, when he uh, took his manuscript to the publisher, uh, he wouldn't have gone far. Nowadays, you can publish, I, I could publish in Paris easily by, uh, by telephone, for instance, um, or uh, by, uh, by, through internet, no problem. I could send them the, uh, my manuscript instantly, and no problem across the sea and everything. Uh, but this was not the case. Uh, until the 20th century, so there we are. Uh, so I, I thought, okay, uh, I will go first to uh, the public library in Cologne and see if they have any books on the Jesuits um, in the 18th century. And so that's where we, we began in the public library. Unfortunately, the public library had been bombed out in World War II. And they said the only place that you might find something <clears throat> from that uh, period would be in the archival, uh, historical archive of the cathedral here in Cologne, or else in Cologne's historical library, uh, the cathedral library. So we went there, we went to the library next and found a little information uh, on. Uh, on what, what happened to the Jesuits in Cologne, 
the uh, after the Pope annihilated the uh, the Society of Jesus, which, by the way, went out of went out of business, went out of existence in in uh, 1773, and was reinstated by another Pope in 1814. So for 40 years, the Jesuits did not exist, and most people do not know that at all. So they were suppressed, and then they came back into into uh, ex existence, and they have continued to the present and have done uh, great things in science and uh, and so on, and of course in theology as well, in astronomy, all all the sciences. They have been uh, very uh, very busy and very productive. Yeah. Uh, anyway, back to Ignatz. So from. Uh, from the library, then, we had sort of a general idea about the Jesuits. Uh, the the uh, rector of the University of Cologne, which existed back in the, in the 18th century, um, wrote a decree that <clears throat> no Jesuits would be allowed to teach in any school, of any, any kind of school in Cologne or any uh, of its environs, so none of the suburbs and, and none of the of the counties around about, they were out. And so I could picture if Ignatz lived in Cologne or anywhere near, that there he was on the street without a means of making a living. So I was very worried. Um, I knew he had survived somehow, for sure, because he wrote that book. In any case, so then from the library, we went to the archive, and we walked into this building. It was a fairly good-sized building, all of it dedicated to um, uh, manuscripts and so forth uh, from the Middle Ages on. And uh, a priest, uh, first of all, there was a receptionist, and I told her what, uh, what we needed, and she then referred us to the librarian on duty, and it was a priest, and he happened to be the supervisor of the whole thing. And he uh, he was a very snooty guy. The moment we came in and started talking to him, he his nose went into the air, and he said, well, I suppose you're looking for your ancestors. And I said, no, no, it's not a family affair. Uh, I'm writing a book about uh, a Jesuit missionary, and he's, oh, the Jesuit stuff, he said. That's all in the city archive. You'll have to go there. And so we, he threw us out, essentially, uh, but before he did that, uh, the, the German efficiency had <laughs> dictated that they would have all the contents of this archive printed up and bound, so they had a set of bound volumes, uh, A through Z, um, where all of their documents were listed. And all of them, of course, had a call number, the way library books do, only these were pieces of paper, pieces of parchment, pieces of vellum. Uh, and uh, so he pulled the P volume for Pfefferkorn uh, off the shelf, and, and I said, his name was Ignaz, Ignaz Pfefferkorn. And they said, oh, there were so many Pfefferkorns. Um, and he opened the volume. It happened to fall open. And I looked over at it, and it said uh, it was 1785. And it, was, uh, it said Ignaz Pfefferkorn. It, it was Ignaz von Pfefferkorn. And I, I had no idea that he had had a fun in his name because he had never signed that way uh, during his entire uh, service as a missionary. It was just Ignaz Pfefferkorn. So um, anyway, I looked, I glanced at this, and he snapped that volume sh uh, shut and said, "Oh, he said it couldn't be him." And I said, <laughs> "Well, it's the right period. It's a, a right. Uh, it's somewhere between seventy-three and ninety-four." Uh, so it might very well be him, and he said, no, he said, go go to the city archive. So he threw us out, essentially, and so we went to the archive and found, uh, found a few things uh, that confirmed the uh, 
the decree of the uh, rector of the university that the Jesuits had been uh, uh, forbidden to teach in the university from uh, 1773 onward. Uh, but we found nothing else. And then we, we went uh, back to the hotel and uh, stood, uh, what are we going to do? Because that document that we got a glimpse of is probably the one that's going to open the uh, the information about Pfefferkorn and his life here. Uh, so I actually had on my computer, on my cell phone, I had a, uh, a copy of the portrait that, of imaginary portrait of Ignaz Pfefferkorn that I had drawn for uh, for the front of, front of the uh, book, uh, the Storks of Makati Dad, uh, and uh, uh, so I had that printed out, and I went the next day to uh, to back to the archive. And it was a different receptionist, and I handed the picture to her and said, I need, there is a document here dated uh, 1785, and I really need to see it because it is under the name of Ignaz Pfeffercourt. And she looked at the picture and she said, oh my, what a handsome man. And I, <laughs> and I said, uh, that was before I had uh, said anything uh, about him. And I said, oh, unfortunately he's been dead. And lo, these 400 years. Uh, but uh, anyway, she uh, she called a, a librarian. It was a priest, but not that priest. And I told him the story, what I needed and what I had seen. And he said, well, oh, this is so exciting, he said. Uh, but I have to check with my supervisor. And I knew who that was. And it was the guy who had thrown us out. So he went over and seated us at one of the library tables, and he was at one end of it, and so were we. We were sitting on either side, and he was at the head of it. And he called upstairs, and uh, I could hear the conversation, the both ends of it. Uh, and so the supervisor said, oh, oh, I saw these people yesterday, and uh, I, uh, I told them, uh, that we didn't have anything uh, to show them. And the the young uh, priest said to him, yes, but uh, uh, on that, uh, they have a portrait, a, a fictional portrait of him, but they have his actual signature on it. And uh, in case any of these documents are in his handwriting, we want to, ch to uh, check the handwriting. So the supervisor said, oh, all right, show them the documents. <laughs> So uh, the documents uh, had all been photocopied. So uh, the young priest went over and he simply printed out from these photocopies, he printed out four documents. And the first one was the uh, nomination of a father, Ignaz von Feverkorn, to be the vicar of the church of St. Pantaleon in Othal. And then the next one was confirmation of that uh, nomination, and uh, the next one was his acceptance of it, and then uh, something else having to do with that. Um, and we looked at the acceptance of it, and the, the handwriting there, he was, it was purported to be his handwriting, but it was not similar to his sig signature at all. So we thought, okay, uh, maybe this is not, um, not ig our Ignatz after all. And so we got up, and the priest gave us the copies of the documents. And so we got up and we started out. But Ralph looked at the signature, and it was, it was signed um, Maria, um, Maria Berntges. And we knew that Isabella had married a man named Theodor Bernskis. And so the, the, uh, she had nominated her uncle to be the vicar of the church in, in, uh, in Uncle. And it, uh, she was obviously, she said uh, in her nomination, my erudite and witty uncle. <laughs> 
ignorance from Capricorn. Uh, and so she was Isabella's daughter. And uh, and Ralph um, said, Berticus, she's his daughter, his niece. It's it's him. It's got to be him. So despite the handwriting, uh, which we we later thought, okay, he had sent someone else to Cologne to sign that uh, that confirmation document in his stead. So it was it was a uh, it was not his handwriting, but it was somebody he had sent to do it for him. Yeah. And so that that solved that. And uh, so then the young man said, well, he said, I, I'm from Uncle. I went to school to the historian of Uncle. So uh, you need to, uh, to get in touch with him. And here's his phone number. And he gave us the phone number of the uh, historian and archivist of Uncle. So we walked out with the phone number. And, and that was a mistake. We should have... <laughs> We should have had him call uh, and introduce us because we went, we were close to the uh, the train station, which was the only place we knew had uh, public telephones. And both of our, um, our uh, cell phones were not working because uh, they were American cell phones and they didn't have the chip necessary to hook up with the European and especially German uh, internet or interface in any case and so uh, we couldn't use our our cell phones so we went to the uh, uh, to the uh, train station and Ralph of course uh, who spoke fluent German rather than my limping German um, uh, he, he called the number and he addressed the person who answered as father uh, and father uh, Pato, uh, we are researching uh, the biography of uh, a man who was in Onco, who was vicar of the Church of St. Pantaleon. Could you give us some information? And the, the voice on the other end said, I am not a priest. And it happened to be um, uh, Mardi Gras right then. <laughs> Uh, so uh, there were bands playing in the background, playing "Ach du lieber Augustin" and other other uh, beer beer uh, hall themes like that. Uh, and so uh, the person in Onco thought that it was a a prank, a Mardi Gras prank, and so he hung up. <laughs> he hung up on Ralph. And uh, so we tried calling back, and of course he he wouldn't answer the phone. Uh, so we th said to each other, "Well, uh, we had already asked the young priest um, how to get to Uncle. All you have to do is drive down uh, the the east side of the Rhine, <laughs> and the Uncle is right there. It's about uh, oh, it's about twenty kilometers south of Bonn, and Bonn is about." 40 kilometers south of Cologne. So it was right in the neighborhood. So uh, we took our rented car and down we went. And Uncle is a tiny town which was never bombed and which still has its 14th and 15th and 16th century uh, houses intact, cobbled streets, uh, and it had a, a wall. Uh, and part, parts of which are still around, and it was right on the banks of the Rhine. Uh, it was Sunday, and uh, so uh, so buildings were uh, the town was closed down for for Sunday, but the church, of course, uh, 13th century church, was open, and so we got into that church, this church of Saint Pantaleon, and. It was just like a jewel box. It was full of statues and paintings and a beautiful altar with the, with the spiral columns uh, like the ones in Rome, only these were, uh, were sized for that church. Uh, and it was Ignatz's great uncle um, who in the late 
17th century had uh, had decorated that church, had re, uh, had repaired the church and decorated it. It was just a gorgeous church, and it it was like that when Ignatz was there, and we could picture him up on the the raised pulpit, uh, which was uh, up above the congregation the way it is in Europe, and the older churches. Uh, I could just picture him up there uh, giving a sermon. Uh, <laughs> and so we were walking on the marble tiles, uh, the black and white marble tiles in that church that he had walked on, and it was an uncanny feeling. But we couldn't we couldn't pursue the matter. We had to, to fly home the next day. So, um, so in any case... Um, we went back uh, again and again, and uh, we met this uh, this historian of Urkel, whose name is Rudolf Fulmer, who helped us reestablish the life of Ignaz Pfefferkorn, and, uh, and I wrote a book uh, about his life right up to his death, but not, not his death scene itself, but very close. He died in... Uh, and 1798, at the age of 73, after all the tortures he had gone through and the hardships, he lived a fairly long life, <clears throat> and obviously a very productive and amazing life at that. And so I was able to uh, to finish the fourth book that I had uh, that I have written on Ignaz Pfefferkorn. Wow! Wow! That's a that's a mouthful to say the least. Um, I, I just, I what what a character, what a uh, what, what a historical figure, uh, and somebody that's virtually unknown other than the work that you've done on him. That's right. That virtually unknown. He's only known to people who want to know something about about uh, the fauna and flora of uh, of the Sonora region. Uh, so the desert and the mountains over there, um, he describes all the plants and, <laughs> and the insects. I, for, I forgot entomology in my list of sciences that he covered in his book. Um, and the book is, is uh, fascinating to read because it is written in, in a very lively style, witty, um, uh, and it's... Uh, uh, it, it shows the personality of the man so so thoroughly, and so I sort of uh, I liked him, and I thought a man who can observe and describe like this would make a wonderful detective. And since he lived through the expulsion and annihilation of the Jesuit order, and people don't know that the Jesuits suffered like that, that most of them died. Uh, the, the Jesuits of the old order, as, as they call it nowadays. <clears throat> Most of them died uh, of persecution. Uh, they were tortured uh, by the Spanish in order to find out where they were. Uh, they were believed to have stolen the gold of the Sonora mines. And so they were kept in prison uh, where the rest of the Jesuits who were uh, in other areas were, were freed to wander about and try to find a job somewhere. Uh, but the Sonora Jesuits were kept uh, for the rest of their lives, most of them, in Spanish prison because the king, this uh, feeble-minded Charles III, uh, believed firmly that they had hoarded the gold of the Sonora mines and he had to torture it out of them. So... Um, they were interrogated. They, uh, nobody uses the word torture, but they uh, they were interrogated repeatedly. Uh, and uh, interrogation in those days uh, used very um, severe, let us say, methods. Uh, I imagine waterboarding was, was not unusual, but other things as well. Uh, and uh, so Pfefferkorn came out uh, scarred from from that but he lived uh, to 93 anyway and you and uh, spent his his last years being a uh, um a, a productive member of uh, of the church and of the community so there he is um and there i am having 
my mission was really to t tell people about the Jesuits and their fate and why people ought to respect them <laughs> more than people do. And I think people generally do respect the Jesuits for their erudition and their contributions uh, in, all, in all kinds of ways. They're still missionaries, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just no no question about it. I mean, there's, uh, but, you know, sometimes if you could, if you can get a character, get one historical figure to stick, it, it, it does a lot for the, uh, you know, the other people around who do certain things, the whole cause, for example. So if Fepicorn uh, could, uh, could catch on as a kind, people find interest there, by uh, extension, they're going to take an interest in, uh, in what the Jesuits have done. Yes, exactly. And what they were doing at the time, I mean, uh, the disciples of Ignatius of Loyola <clears throat> uh, were amazing in what they accomplished uh, before they all died out. And, and it was the Jesuits who organized and ran the, uh, the Council of Trent. And the church ran on the Council of Trent's uh, teachings and, and regulations uh, right up into the 20th century. Uh, in fact, right up to Vatican II, pretty much. And uh, Vatican II was the great revolution in which uh, the church uh, changed in so many ways. Had the congregation participate in the Mass instead of simply sitting there while the priest, with his back turned to the congregation, uh, said Mass. Uh, now the, the, uh, the priest faces the congregation uh, the the congregation is uh, involved in the liturgy as well. Uh, I mean, there are all these changes which uh, just totally uh, lightened uh, the experience of the mass. So, uh, so the and uh, the Jesuits again in Vatican II uh, were very very prominent um, and. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of his full name. His last name is Murray. I think his first name was John, but there's another name in there uh, who was a Jesuit who uh, was very, very influential in, in Vatican II. And he was teaching at Yale at a time when my husband was there. And my husband, who was Jewish, um, knew Latin and knew it well. Uh, and he was interested in theology also and in uh, Christianity. And well, since he was in uh, comparative literature, ma mainly written by Christians, by the way, uh, and the symbols used are generally Christian symbolism, uh, and Kurt needed to know all of that. And so he, he attended uh, Father Murray's uh, class, which was conducted in Latin. Was it John Courtney Murray? Yes, John Courtney. Courtney is the key word that I was forgetting. Right, I just looked him up. I cheated, so it's not like it, my, <laughs> it came to memory. But John Courtney Murray, um, yes. yeah, yes. he he died the year I was born, in '67. Really? Uh huh. Yeah. Many years well, ago. Kurt was there in the '50s. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so he uh, he knew him and uh, and had conversations with him. Uh, so. Uh, so that's sort of that's a feather in my husband's cap, anyway. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's just, I, you know, the story gets better and better. I, you know, I wonder if the, you know, if the Jesuit, Jesuits or, or the people that are interested in keeping the, um, the the uh, the great accomplishments of the Jesuits, if they would get behind your books, uh, at least the ones that are are featuring uh, Ignatz uh, Pfefferkorn. Yes. You know, it would be wise for them to do so. It would, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the Jesuits uh, had a chance to read my uh, <laughs> my four books on Ignaz Febercourt, um, uh, because I, before I published, I looked for a Jesuit to read uh, the first one I wrote, uh, which was about Sonora, about his uh, missions. In, I wrote two about his missions in Sonora. 
and then one one about his imprisonment in Spain, and then one about his life in in Germany. So I cover uh, his mature life uh, pretty thoroughly, uh, and of course I filled in the gaps with my imagination, uh, but. Uh, trying to be as true to the person that I knew from reading his book as I possibly could. Uh, but anyway, he was a courageous and tenacious individual, that's for sure, and full of, full of wit. Uh, so in, in times of hardship, he would find something to laugh about. And of course, uh, as a musician, he was, he was really something too, apparently. So uh, he was quite quite the individual, and it would be nice if my little books would uh, would be read, and uh, and people would understand more where the Jesuits have been and who they are. And uh, anyway, I looked for a Jesuit to read the uh, the first of these books, and I could not. I did not know that there were any Jesuits in San Antonio. The Franciscans are dominant here. And so I thought only Franciscans were here. And uh, so uh, I sent the book. I looked in the Internet for Jesuit colleges, and I found one um, in Mobile. Hmm. And Of all places. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I sent, uh, I sent the book there, the, my manuscript there. Uh, I contacted the librarian first and asked her what she thought I should do. I told her that I needed Jesuit to read the book and tell me whether my Jesuit portrayal of a Jesuit was uh, was uh, accurate and believable and likable. And she gave me two names. And so I submitted the book to these priests with their permission, of course. Co uh, corresponded with them, and uh, they they never read the book. They never got around to reading the book. And so a year passed. And then one day I was, I opened, and that was back uh, in uh, the early uh, 21st century, so probably 2001 or so, 2002. Um, and uh, uh, I opened the uh, telephone directory, which fell open to the J's, and I looked down, and a little entry said, Jesuit Fathers, and then there was a telephone number. So I called that number, and a female voice answered and said, Our Lady of Guadalupe Church. And I said, Oh, no, I thought it was Jesuit Fathers. And she said, Well, it is. And I said, Oh. And then I said, I have, a, I have this manuscript that I need a Jesuit to read it, and so on and so forth. And she said, Oh, uh, well, that would be Father James Lambert, Father Father." Uh, uh, Father Jim, that would be Father Jim. Uh, he's the one who reads. And I laughed. <laughs> I, said, I said to myself, oh, the Jesuits have really fallen if there's only one of them who reads. <laughs> the Jesuits would have uh, would have cracked your knuckles if you didn't know how to read uh, in their classrooms. I can't imagine. I can't imagine there's a Jesuit uh, that ever lived that didn't know how to read. Right. Well, what she meant was that he reads something other than theology. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she yeah. set up an appointment for me, and uh, so I got to know Father Jim, who was Father James Lambert, and uh, uh, he uh, he took the book. He said, "Oh yes, I'd be happy to read it," and. Uh, uh, and he said, I'm the pastor of this church, and unfortunately, I'm pretty busy, so give me a week or two to read it. And I said, Father, <laughs> I have waited a year for a priest, for a couple of priests to read it, and they didn't. So uh, you may have all the time you wish. <laughs> well, two, two days later, he called me and said, I couldn't put your book down. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I have a couple of... Uh, things to point out about the ranks because as you know he said the Jesuits are set up like a military orders and so you've got some of the ranks uh, that need to be revised and so I went back and uh, and he of course talked to me about that uh, but otherwise he said uh, your Ignaz Fettercorn comes across very well as a believable 
priest and human being. Uh, so that was my introduction to the Jesuits themselves. And so, of course, I joined that church. Yeah. I had been looking for a church home here in San Antonio. And I'd been going around to the churches up here in the northern part of the city, and they're all wealthy and um, big and wealthy and ostentatious. And I did not feel at home in them because they were too, uh, you know, I mean, they were too posh. Uh, and uh, when I walked into the Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, um, it was beautiful, but it was a humble little church by comparison, and people spoke Spanish there. It was the Hispanic community, and I, since I speak Spanish and have taught Spanish for years and years, um, I felt at home there, and so I joined that church rather than one of the, uh, the wealthy ones up here in the north and have been happy there. Uh, that's my church home, uh, and, uh, and I am able to, to be of use <laughs> there. I, I, I sing in the choir, I'm a Eucharistic minister and all, all sorts of things for that church. Uh, and uh, so uh, it has been a very happy experience. Unfortunately, though, the Jesuits uh, were short, they are short-handed. And so most of their uh, priests who were in church ministry have uh, been taken for uh, missionary work or for teaching. And uh, and so the Franciscans have taken that church now, mm-hmm. and I I feel less at home uh, there at the moment than I did with the Jesuits. Amazing, just uh, just unbelievable. Um, you, you know, it's it, Fefaquan. Ever since you've talked about him, I've uh, I've been fascinated uh, by him. But you could find so little. <laughs> on on Fefecoin, and i think you've been in touch with the the other person who's put anything up anyway uh it, you know you hopefully we'll continue to talk about a really an amazing uh man a renaissance uh, for uh, a mod- or his version of a renaissance man but um yes just uh, just absolutely amazing um uh, doc great job as always and uh, hopefully we'll be hearing more about this uh, great jesuit uh, just an amazing job that uh, that he's done in his life, but what you've done capturing um, the uh, you know the the character and creating uh, off of him the offshoot character the extension. So uh, great job in all of that. And by the way, I did I was invited by Uncle. Uh, they were giving a a festival uh, in honor of uh, of the Jesuits there and. Uh, uh, and Pfefferkorn's book was very much prominently on display in the original, uh, and, uh, uh, which is a museum item, of course, the original copy. Uh, but uh, in any case, I gave a talk uh, about Pfefferkorn for them, and then later on I gave a, a talk in Siegburg, uh, which was where the Pfefferkorns were really very prominent. Uh, and uh, so I gave two talks. Uh, and that one was attended by some of the German Jesuits uh, who, are, are, who are members of the church there at, uh, at, in Siegburg. So uh, I was able, and I gave these speeches in German, by the way. So my, <laughs> my German had improved radically thanks to my research and contacts. And, uh, and Rudolf Fulmer and his wife Maria are, are very bosom friends of mine uh, by now uh, and we correspond every so often it's it's less often now since Ralph Friedman has passed uh, because uh, he was also a member of the uh, uh, of the two of us who were it was a duo uh, doing this research so uh, uh, so he was uh, a good friend of theirs as well as I was and am uh, but uh, doing all of this research, both in Spain and in uh, Germany, was a very uh, enriching experience for me in many, many ways. Yeah, well, listen, great job, as always, um, to everyone out there. I, I hope they enjoyed it the way I did. 
and we urge you urge you to uh, to read these books uh, by uh, by Dr. Weinberg, uh, just amazing. There's 16. She has a 17th on the way, which would be her memoir. And uh, tell something tells me, among all the fascinating work that she's done, this is going to be the most fascinating. And we've heard excerpts here. But Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on The Florence Weinberg Show. <laughs>